Quite enthusiasm there. Thank you. Well, it was frost on the pumpkin this morning. I guess you noticed our first frost. And yes, God is the God of the seasons and the seasons just in nature just reminds us of his goodness and his sovereignty. Well, it's a pleasure to be in the presence of God with you this morning. And we are in the great book of Nehemiah, that Old Testament book. And we are in chapter eight this morning. And when we close chapter seven, we close with taking a look at building a God fearing society. And I didn't draw attention to this last time, the very last verse of chapter seven. But with the city secure, of course, the wall has been built around the city of Jerusalem. Leaders have been put in place. Policies have put have been put in place. The people were then able to move into their towns in the city. They had not been able to do that because they were not safe enough. So now there are about 50,000 people that have moved into the city of Jerusalem during this time of redemptive history. So Nehemiah chapter 7, the very last verse of chapter 7, 73 says, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is a huge thing. It's a huge thing to celebrate. So there are about 50,000 people. That's a few more than what we have in Nottaway. What are we about 14, 15,000 and. Um, I think Richmond has about 250,000, Lynchburg about 75,000. So this is a good amount of people. But this is a nation, not just a city. This is all the available people, the remnant of Israel. And they were able to move into their towns. And you'll remember that the wall is built around the boundary. And the towns are kind of broken into neighborhoods depending on what gate you live near. Because there's several gates around the wall. So there they are, about 50,000 people. And while they were working outside diligently, working on the wall of God, God was diligently working on the inside and he was working on their hearts. So we don't think that it was just manual labor going on. This was a spiritual work to build. The wall was a spiritual work, but the wall is just a part of God's plan for restoring his people back to rebuilding lives of worship. And by the way, it's interesting. You'll remember that when they started the wall, they were being mocked and made fun of. And good old uh, Sam Ballot and Tobiah said that the wall was so sorry that even if a fox jumped on it, it would just fall over because you guys don't know what you're doing. And however, the wall did not fall down. They are safe and secure behind this wall. So the wall was built on the outside to give them safety. The wall was built. So that the enemy can be kept out and the good things of God can be kept in. And God during this time was also working on their hearts so that the enemy can be kept out and the good things of God can be kept in. And I think it's just a reminder as they were going on with their life responsibilities, God was doing his thing. He uses all of this. So when we go to work, when we go to school, we take the bus, we go to school, we we, we make that trek to work every day when we're reading our books and so forth. When we're going and living our lives and doing life, God, because of his promise and because of his love, is diligently using all of life's happenings to do the great spiritual work in our hearts. 
And there is yet work to be done. That's why after the wall was finished, Nehemiah didn't take the bus back to Persia. He stayed there because this is just a part of it. And now that they're safe behind the wall, Israel is not, they're still in a spiritual bad, spiritually bad place. They're not as close to God as they need to be. They have wandered from him for many, many years. So I don't want to give the impression, though, good things are happening in the right direction that they have already arrived. They still have some distance to go, as we will see, as we continue to look at this book. But when you walk as far away from God as they did and chase after idols and try to satisfy the longing of your heart in the wrong kind of way, it takes a long Line of obedience in the right direction to come back to him. So they're on the right track, but there's still rebuilding that needs to be done. And so we're going to look at what that looks like for Israel. And so after the wall that was well built, we'll take a look at what I'll call a well built heart. And in this chapter, we'll look at two characteristics of a well built heart. And I will just add to prime the pump a little bit, though the wall is finished and most of the tools are laid to rest. You still will hear in the background of this chapter some clanging and banging of nails and construction because they're still working on a project that's very important that will be used by God as a tool to draw his people closer. And when we get to point two, you will see what that construction is all about. But for now, chapter seven tells us the people are back in their towns. And they are gathering on the first day of the seventh month. Now, this is this is a big deal. That's why Nehemiah points it out, because it is the seventh month that begins another month of feasts, mandatory feasts that God gave to his people in the in the laws of Moses, the book of the law. There were seven times a year that God called his people. To, he says, I'm calling you to the city, the place that I will Dwell, the place that I will call mine and my name will dwell there among you. You can't just meet anywhere you want. You are to meet at the place that I tell you and you are to come. And so there's seven times a year or seven feasts that God gives to his people where they come together and corporately worship him. This is uh, this first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. And so it's a Sabbath day. It's a holy day. Walmart's closed. Gas stations are closed. You can't do any business on their day on this day. You're supposed to rest and worship God. So they come to to the temple and they offer sacrifices. They make their offerings. And it's a day of also of celebration. And it's called the Feast of Trumpets. Guess why? Because they blow trumpets on that day. Oddly enough, scholars aren't really sure about everything that took place on this day. It doesn't even really have an official name like Feast of Trumpets is just what they call it because the only command they got was, I want you to blow trumpets on this day and offer sacrifices. But they think that it's um, kind of like what we would do in celebrating our new year because it's the first year of the civil uh, year for the calendar of the Jews. And so it's kind of like heralding the new year. It's just an opportunity to rejoice and give thanks to God. As a matter of fact, just to to wet our whistle as well, we're going to look. I'm going to spend an entire sermon next week looking at this idea of God calling his people to rejoice. Because as I as I thought about the feasts and then later on, we're going to look at how 
uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, the people are going to come before the word of God. We'll look at that. But they begin to mourn and repent, which is obviously a good thing. But then they are told by their leaders, stop mourning and rejoice in the Lord. And I was reminded that God actually put on the calendar days for his people to come and be joyful in their worship of him corporately. And I thought, well, isn't that kind of presumptuous? I mean, what if you're not in a good mood that day? What what if you have a lot of things going on in your life? How can God just put a day on the calendar and say, this is the day my people are going to come and rejoice? Where do our moods, where do our feelings come into all that? We're going to wrestle with that next time. But in these verses, we're going to look at two characteristics of a well-built heart. And the first, um, John Razima did a good job of preparing us for this message because in Sunday school this morning, because the first uh, characteristic of a heart that God wants to build in his people is a desire for unity. And we had an excellent teaching on the importance of unity in Scripture this morning. Look at verse 1. In chapter 8, here's what happened on that day. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, if you're my age or a little bit older, you'll know all about Watergate, right? I mean, Watergate and President Nixon and the scandal. And he went across to the hotel Watergate and looked at documents he wasn't supposed to look at. And the late Chuck Colson knows about Watergate as well. But that's not the water gate that we're talking about here. This is a literal water gate. And you'll know that they named a lot of the gates in Jerusalem with just real practical names. Sheep gate. It's the water gate. I would imagine there's probably a spring and there's some water near this gate. But what I want to draw attention to is the phrase, the people gathered as one man. And if you read this chapter, you'll find that it's really a chapter about the people. The word people's mentioned 13 times and then all the people is mentioned nine times. And so you get the hint that God's talking about the people. And he's, it's not so much about the wall anymore, or even about the leaders, but it's what the people are doing, what the people are feeling and experiencing. And <clears throat> it's not just what they're, what they're experiencing individually, but the emphasis on is on corporately or collectively. This is what the people of God are doing together. In fact, they're so together that Scripture describes it as being as one man. There's that harmony. There's, a, there's this supernatural agreement that's taking place. They are working together. They're all on the same page. It's as if they all know what they're supposed to be doing. And this is a powerful phrase in Scripture. We've seen it before. Just a few examples. You might recall this phrase in the book of Judges. When the 11 tribes came together as one man to go to war against Benjamin, you know, here they were fragmented, but they finally agreed to do something. And that was to come against their own brother, Benjamin. We also saw it in the book of Ezra not so long ago when the remnant came back to Jerusalem and they came together as one man to build the temple and they were able to build the temple. And it's a powerful phrase, especially when you think about the history of God's people, because through much of their history, there's nothing but fragmentation. 
And you would think it might be a common thing for them to come together as one man, but it wasn't. I mean, all throughout Scripture, we, brought, we, we read about brother against brother and tribe against tribe and nation against nation, even kingdom against kingdom, the divided kingdom in Israel, the north and the south. But when they come together, things happen, and it's this, this powerful time, and they make a powerful force. They are, because they're agreeing on things, or you might say their minds are Walking together. Unity is a powerful thing in, in any in any direction or any event. And we know that unity is greatly emphasized, as we heard this morning in Sunday school in the New Testament. Unity is actually a part of the gospel message. It's a part of what it means to be saved and for God to save us. But I think what this passage does is serves as a great reminder Though unity explodes in the New Testament, it's a great reminder that unity has always been important to God. It's just it's not just something that he came up with in the New Testament. It has always been a part of his plan for his people. As a matter of fact, it's a part of his very fabric and has been designed into creation. God's plan begins with the individual, but he always has an eye To the masses. You'll find that again and again in scripture. He begins with the individual. But he always has this plan. For the individuals to come together. And to work together. Well we know. There's power in that kind of unity. You take one candle. And you get light. But if you take a thousand candles. And put them together. You just push back the darkness. And so, so God. Loves this idea of. People coming together. In agreement. He wants his fra- the fragmented individual pieces to come together in unity. Psalm 133 one says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Of course, we reap practical benefits of unity. If you have disunity, say, in a re- any kind of relationship, it's not fun at all. There's tension and anxiety. And it, it's good and pleasant to dwell in unity. There are results to it. The Feast of Trumpets, here they are, gathered on this day. One of the seven festivals. And they are called together to celebrate the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God together. And it's a day when they have been commanded by God, come from wherever you are in the countryside, wherever you're living, And you're commanded to come corporately and offer your sacrifices and worship in sync and in unity. So another word for unity is agreement. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. Agreement is another unity term. And the word agree means to be of one mind. And the Greek word here is symphoneo, which, of course, we get our word symphony from. So that's what we can picture as we think about God's idea of unity. It's it's the individual instruments coming together that can make a sound that a solo just can't do. It's, It's much richer and it's much fuller. 
And there are times when God calls his people together collectively to offer up a richer and fuller, say, prayer life or or praise or just being all one in the area of faith and doctrine. With a symphony, you know how it works. You get all of the different instruments and under one conductor, they play the same notes and it sounds Wonderful. They're harmonious with one another. It just fits. It fits great and it magnifies the sound. It's interesting, though, if one instrument gets out of tune or out of whack, you can usually tell it and it kind of messes up the whole thing. But when they're in harmony, it sounds better. The other beauty about being in a symphony or say like a choir where there's more than just one is if you're not quite able to hit some of the notes it helps you come in line, helps you instrumentally and musically, because you're, you're here and say, I don't know, 10 50 or 50 people sing that one note right on the money. And it helps you line yourself up with what it's supposed to look like or sound like. Unity has that effect. When we come together, there's a place for our individual Christian lives that will we'll look at that. But unity has this powerful, powerful effect of we can come together and see corporately and collectively what the Christian life is supposed to look like. What does it mean or look like to praise and worship God? What does it look like to walk worthy of the calling? What does it look like to repent? Am I am I doing this individually right? And so it hones us. And it's not an option for Israel. It was a requirement. God required that they do The same thing in the same way on the same day and like it. That's the rejoice part that we'll look at next week. Unfortunately, as you know, in the West, we have a very, very individualistic mindset. And uh, that has crept into the church and has had the impact that we have some Christians that now think it's it's okay to just be a solo Christian, to not have to come to church or worship, you know, as a group with the saints. It's um, it's this belief that it, what's important to God is as long as I worship him, as long as I'm in his word and I I'm having my devotions and I'm living for him. That's all God requires of me. And that's my church. That that's not the whole picture. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. Scripture is all about a unity. It's about gathering. And we heard this morning the body of Christ where the members do what? They are considered one. They're working together. They're connected. And so that's not a and that's not the full package of what God teaches. Corporate worship, this holy convocation that they had here during this feast is extremely important to God. So so important that he says, look, put these dates on your calendars. Seven days out of the year. Well, they, they lasted for more than a day, though. Most of them. Some of them went on for weeks, ten days and things. So t- seven times out of the year, put this on the calendar, guys. Come and worship me as a unit. So that's how important it is for God. So, yeah, there's time for us, Scripture teaches, to get into our prayer closet one-on-one. One-on-one time is very important. But then there's times to turn that prayer closet into a prayer plaza where all of the people agree on what the requests and the petitions are and lift them up to God in that richer, fuller way.
And it's kind of the difference between a canoe going through the water as opposed to a cruise ship. You know, the wake that you leave is much has a greater impact. The one, the voice of one can be powerful. A shout of one can be powerful. But the shouts of many can take down walls. Can you imagine in the story of we sang a little bit about as Joshua did at Jericho? Can you imagine how would that story have ended where God commanded all his people to march around the city of Jericho that had these tremendous walls? And he said, I want you to all shout exactly at the same time. The idea is this. Every voice counts. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Every voice counts. Every voice counts. Can you imagine if just one or two people shouted? That would have been a, a fail. <laughs> we call it a fail. Man, it's a fail. Um, but everybody shouted and the walls came down. So there are things that the people of God can only accomplish as a group. And it's just the way God designed it. So it can only be one as, as a team, as a family, as a group, or as a church. Another thing, a lot of times we resist this idea of community or even corporate worship because uh, we, we use the failures of the church as an excuse not to be a part of the church. And it's really easy to do that because the church has quite a bad history, a little bumpy road. And some people say, well, I can't be a part of that because look at the history. Think of the Crusades. Think of even the more recent molestations that have taken in the church. It's a terrible thing. And, or, or the church is, is too traditional. It's too out of date. It's too religious. Uh, it's, it's filled with too many hypocrites that say one thing and do another. And really all those things, unfortunately, are true at any given time. But, that, but what does Scripture teach us to do about a church that's sick or failing? Not jump ship, but to get in there and do the work of, of, of restoring it and cleaning it up. The answer to a church that is going astray is to try to do everything within your power to keep it from going down that path. Scripture says only when it becomes a false church that teaches false doctrine, after you fought hard for that not to happen, then you jump ship to do what? To be a part of a church that that preaches the Bible and the true gospel. Many today, as a result of this, have what you might call a low view of the church. We're definitely in a, in a, in a day of age, and day and age where there is just a low view of the church. And we see it. People are leaving the church. Uh, the recent polls show, especially in the mainline denominations, that numbers are decreasing depend, uh, tremendously, not so much in the more conservative evangelical churches, although that if things don't change, obviously, is the next in line. But many people see the church today as weak or apathetic or even pitiful. But here's the thing. What matters most is how Jesus, is how Christ looks at her. And what Scripture teaches about the church as imperfect as we are is that Christ loves her and sees her as his bride. So much so, his affection is set on the church so much so that he desires to be in a married relationship. She's so beautiful to him that he wants to marry her, take her in, cherish her. 
protect her and behold her beauty forever. And if if his bride happens to trip while walking down the aisle or be mocked or if his bride doesn't feel as beautiful as he knows that she is, he, he helps her up. He doesn't jump ship. If there's there's a failure, if there's a stumble, he runs to her aid. He helps her up. He, he puts her back in order because he has set his affection on her. Maybe she's in tears. Maybe she's not sure of herself. Maybe she is not sure that she is beautiful in the eyes of God or the eyes of Christ. Maybe she's embarrassed or doesn't feel so beautiful. But but Christ has a high view of the church and the body of Christ, which means that we, the body of Christ, should have a high view of the church. A low view of the church is just a sickness that doesn't help the church at all. So it's important for individuals to work together. So why can't we do our own thing? Is it really that important? Because it's hard. It's hard to be in unity, to dwell in unity. Why can't we just all do our own thing? We touched on this this morning. Unity actually is a reflection of the Holy Trinity. Everything that we see was created to be a reflection of the character of God. And so unity reflects the character of the Godhead. You have three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in one God that operate in perfect harmony, perfect agreement. And so that is to be reflected in all of his creation. That's why we're here, to reflect the glory of God. And so if we're not in unity, according to God's definition, then we're not, we're not serving our very purpose for existence. So you have the, the three distinct persons, but they come together as one. And this is designed in the fabric of society. So take one of the very first acts in the Bible after man is created. You have marriage. It says God created them male and female. You have two distinct people, individuals. But what does he commission those two distinct individuals to do? Come together, join hands and fulfill the great commission of taking dominion and being fruitful together. In harmony, he says, become one flesh. This, this idea of oneness is from front to back. And of course, what's going to happen in, in heaven? God's going to get his way. The vision of oneness is fulfilled because every knee and every, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There will not be one bad note in heaven. It will be complete unity and harmony. So there's this mandate, there's this, the way God does things is taking the individuals and telling them to come together as a team and work together in order to serve him more fully. I like the scripture in Job. You know, Job, he's sorely sick. He's lost most of his family, his possessions. He's just suffering incredibly. And uh, his friends come to comfort him, but they don't comfort him at all. They just kind of rub it in his nose. Uh, Eliphaz, one of his friends, does this. But listen to what he has to say in Job 22, 21 through 23. He says to Job, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you. 
Receive instruction from his mouth. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. Now, he's wrong in the fact that he is saying, Job, you're suffering because you're sin. And we know that that's not the case in this book. But what he says about unity and agreement is absolutely true. When you agree with God, then comes the peace, then comes the good. That's how we are built up. So this, the, 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 there are benefits to unity and agreement. And then again, the idea explodes in the New Testament with Jesus. John 17, in his prayer, what we call the high priestly prayer. So here, if you want to know, well, what kind of things would Jesus pray about? Here it is. He's saying, the glory that you have given me, he's talking to his heavenly father, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So now we know what's on Jesus' prayer list. This is literally a prayer request of God the Son that they may become Perfectly one. So if, if Jesus is praying that this is that this will happen. He's talking to his heavenly father. How can we justify life without involvement in the body of Christ? If this is the very thing that Jesus is asking the father to bring about, which, of course, Christ accomplished, we learned in Ephesians through his death and resurrection. And now we are to maintain the unity. So it's it's beautiful in God's sight. So much so that Jesus prays for it and the unity becomes a witness to the whole world that they may know the love of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we looked at this morning, how do we do this? How is it even possible for the individuals to be in unity? Here's how you build it. It's based on this idea once again of oneness. Because there really is one God, one faith. It's based on the fact God is one. There's one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the bottom line is there's only one way to do life and it's God's way. All the individual members come along and follow under the commands or the instruction of the Lord. And that's how unity is possible. It's not that God is asking us to all agree about everything. Well, who's the best baseball team and football team? What's the best truck and so forth? That's that's not the idea behind the unity. It's God asking his people, commanding his people to be in oneness about what he has shared with them. Divine revelation, what he has said. So it's coming on board with the teachings of God, that is the characteristic of a well-built heart. So we see this idea of unity from beginning to end. And by the way, for us to live in unity in the midst of a culture that has a low view of the church is a powerful thing. And it is something that we can't relax because that is part of hearing God's divine word and walking in obedience to it. We want to hold on to these things, the one faith, the teaching. Of God. Well, why are they gathered with this one mindset? What, are, what is it they're wanting to, to happen? Well, we see this in our second point. They're going to do something. 
that they have not done in a long, long time as the people of God. And the second characteristic of a well-built heart is a desire for God's word. A desire to hear God. That's what God is building in all of his people. He, this longing to hear from him because God has spoken. God has a lot to say. Now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. But I'm going to ask you to do something different. Something that we very, very rarely, rarely do in this church. As I read these eight verses, I'm going to ask that the entire congregation stand in the presence of the reading of God's word. So please stand as we read God's holy word. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears. Of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Masaiah on the right hand. And Pedaiah and Mashiel and Mal- Malkijah, Hashem, Hashabadana, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated few things about this text. First of all, now we know what the construction project was that was going on, even though the wall was built. And that is that they were building this podium for the scribe Ezra to stand upon as he read the word of God. That way he's above them and his voice can project and they won't miss anything and they can see the figure up there. And so this construction project played an important part in Drawing the people to God. And they are hungry to hear God's word. This is a very unusual happening. First of all, they're not in the temple. Most of the feasts and the gatherings took place in the temple. But by being out in the plaza, more people are able to attend. You have women and children of all ages. Anybody that that can come close to understanding, understanding, they are hungry to hear the book of the law. Now, keep in mind that the Bible was not as widespread. We have, you can get the Bible in any form and fashion today, even on your phones. 
uh, we thought we were doing well to have it, you know, after the Gutenberg press in written form. Now you can just get it anywhere. It, it was um, not as accessible in that day. Usually only some scribes or priests had it, and it was painstakingly copied letter by letter, sentence by sentence, and so forth. So not just everybody had access to it. This is a big deal. And a lot of times on these feasts, there were specific feasts where God commanded the public reading of his word. This isn't one of them. This isn't one of the feasts where they were commanded to to listen to God's word. So it's like usually the priest would come out with the book and he would call the people for the people are calling the priests out to bring your scrolls. Read us God's word. It's kind of like you guys showing up on a Thursday and saying, we want church. We want church instead of waiting for Sunday. So there's just this incredible hunger and desire to hear from God. And that's that's what God does. It's a characteristic of the work of the spirit in our hearts. If we find ourselves hungry and desiring God's word, that's evidence because that's how we hear from him. That's how we hear from God. It is through the word of God and they want to hear from God. So here they are gathered in the Watergate Plaza, this this everyday place, not even in the temple, the place where they they play movies on the wall with a projector. Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments and Lord of the Rings and Veggie Tales for the Kids. And then here they are gathered to hear God's word. About 50,000 people. They said, Ezra, bring, us, bring out the scrolls. I like what Mark Driscoll said. They're looking for the, the books of Moses, which are the first five books, the Pentateuch. And uh, Driscoll cracked me up when he preached a sermon on this passage. And he said, so there they are. 50,000 people crying out for God's word. We want the Pentateuch. Yes, we do. We want the Pentateuch. How about you? And so I thought that was interesting. So there's something very spiritual, a very spiritual atmosphere going on here. Something they have not experienced in a long time. By God's grace, they have this incredible sense that he is going to speak to them. And they long for it. What do they want to hear? They are crying out for the commandments of God, of all things. They want to hear the law, the Pentateuch. They want to hear what God has to say to his people so they know where they stand with him. So they know exactly how they can walk in obedience, how they can shed their sinful ways from them. And by hearing from the word, they hear directly from God. And so you can just picture the beautiful scene where... This platform has been built. And here comes Ezra with his other Levite friends. And he's got, he got the scrolls. They didn't flip pages in that day. They unrolled the, uh, the papyrus scrolls. And he's got the scrolls. And he puts them up on the pulpit, I guess. And they unfold them. And he's got his other guys, his helpers there to the left and to the right. So he's above them. They can hear. And as far as we know, before he even begins to read the word of God. The people stand in the presence and he begins with this prayer, a prayer that blesses the Lord and their ears were attentive and they all cry out. Amen. Amen. Which is what? Another word of agreement. We agree. God is to be a blessed. They had attentive ears. We read about the gospel in the gospels. Jesus is saying those who have ears to hear. He realizes that not everybody wants to hear the word of God. 
Some of us run from it. We don't want it. We're scared of it or we ignore it or we just we don't want to hear the truth. But some longed for it and they postured themselves so that they would not miss a word. So there's Ezra on the platform with his scrolls and with his men. And verse five tells us that all the people stood. Now, this is early in the morning. I guess some of them weren't early risers. Maybe some of them were lounging or laying around waiting for something to get going. But when Ezra stepped up there with the scroll, they all in unison stood. It's a external symbol of an internal respect that goes on in their hearts. There are churches still today, many churches, where when the word of God is read, the people stand. And then when the word is finished, then they are seated. Now, I grew up Catholic, which is very, a very has a very symbolic faith. And um, the, uh, the priest, you, he, you didn't just stand in the front at the beginning of service. He came in from the back. There was a procession to begin the service. And he would come with the, uh, the Holy Bible and he would walk in down this aisle up to the front with it here to, to communicate to everybody, this is God's word. We're about to sit under God's word. We're about to hear from the living God. So it was, there's all this symbolism involved. So Israel is aware that to be in the presence of the word of God is to be in the presence of God. They're going to hear from the living God, which they do. And it has such an effect on them. They're in this awkward position where it says their hands are raised and yet their heads are bowed to the ground. So they're praising him. But yet there's something about them that knows I probably shouldn't act like everything's good and right because I'm about to hear the law of God. And I have this suspicion that I'm going to get a little whipping right here now based on the life that I. So there's this humility, humility coming before the word of God makes me wonder, do we take God's the, the public reading of God's word and these holy convocations for granted? I mean, do we realize that this is God's method to communicate to his people? It's church. He, it's his idea, his design, not some brilliant saints. And when God's word is open and expounded, he is speaking to us. His presence is here. And we believe that by faith. Now. God wasn't there in a visible presence. And yet look at the effect. There was there were no there was no Shekinah glory or fire or cloud. What was there? Just the word of God being read. And they knew he's here. He is among us. And the word of God has been faithfully read in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's how people grow. That's how God manifests himself. You don't always need that cloud and that fire. We have the very living word of God. And we're talking about a book, not just a book that we read, but you realize that it reads us back. Right. Isn't that what Hebrews teaches us? It's living and active. So when we engage in it, it is engaging with us and reading us back. So they are saying, Amen, Ezra. We are one. We are one. God is to be blessed. They have ears to hear. They're in a posture of praise. They are worshiping the Lord. And they are realizing that they have some repenting to do. And we'll look at that next week. As Ezra is 
reading the word of God, something else pretty phenomenal happens. And that is the lead of what it means. Now, you know, you become a Christian, you read the Bible and you're like, what? Uh, what? What does that mean? The Bible's mysterious. You don't just you don't read it one time and, oh, I got that. Where's the, where's the other book? God? I got this one. It's very, it's, it takes a lot of work. It's laborious, and we need help to understand it. And so there were the, the ministers of God to help the people understand what the law was saying and how it applied to their life. And we'll see next time that they do apply it to their lives as they explain the meaning and expounded this before the people and gave them the sense. Now, I'm guessing I've been here for maybe 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes. So hopefully none of you can tell me exactly how long. Is this on or is the battery dead? Or is dead? So i got to stand here, then you can hear me. Sorry. Okay. Um, so maybe, what, about 40 minutes. They started in the morning, early morning, and, and Ezra read and expounded God's Word till midday. We're talking about a six-hour sermon. So... In order to obey the Word of God, we've been here, what, an hour? We've got five hours to go. A six-hour sermon where the people were attentive and they just were soaking up God's Word. What does that say about us? Now, I went to a, um, I went to a funeral of a great man of God yesterday, Lee Copeland. And the testimonies were incredible, a very God-honoring um, and one of the things I walked away, this is a little tangent, but one of the things I walked away with was just a reminder of how God uses us in little ways. Because testimony was given about things that he had spoken into people's lives. It wasn't like this great sermon he preached and things. It was, Pastor Lee said this to me and it changed my marriage. Pastor Lee said this to me and it and it led me to Christ. It showed me my need. Just, just little conversations over a cup of coffee or after church or something like that. So these little divine moments, the things that we say to the glory of God, we have no idea the impact. And I guarantee you now, maybe Pastor Lee knows, but at that time he had no idea the impact that he was having. A little bit of salt that was spreading throughout that community. But one of the testimonies that was given, actually Missy Dereja this shared this, about Pastor Lee. And she said, after church, I approached him. And I said, Pastor Lee, your sermons are too long. They, you can speak longer than we have an intention span. You know, there's statistics about how long people can pay attention. And Pastor Lee uh, responded, sermonettes are for Christianettes. I like that. So they stood in unity with eager hearts to hear from the living God. And he spoke to them and they just crumbled in his presence with a reverence and an attitude of worship. And uh, their, their, their desire and hunger for God was very, very palpable. I think there's a challenge for us here as I, I wind down. Um, as we come before him in, in our Sabbath day celebrations, this is our holy convocation. We are literally walking in obedience to Christ when we come together like this. So we want to challenge ourselves when we come together. Do we come together with a view of unity? Not trying to persuade one another with our own opinions, but we're coming together.
together in unity and agreement that the one faith is true. God's divine revelation has spoken to us and he says there's one God, one faith, one hope, one baptism. That's what unity is. Every individual agreeing on the one God and what he has to say. It's coming under the, the master's orchestration. Everyone is listening to the same command and playing the same tune in the symphony. We want to ask ourselves about this thing called church. And do we have a high view of the church? Are we looking at the church like Christ Caesar? Or have we fallen into the trap of looking at the church as the world sees her? A bygone thing that's no longer needed. That is not what we will find when we read God's holy word. We want to make her attractive to the world. Fix her up and brush her up so that she is prepared. By the way, what are we doing right now in the Christian life? We're walking down the aisle. We're the bride of Christ. We're just walking down the aisle. He's sanctifying us and beautifying us for that wonderful wedding day. And we want to acknowledge in unity as a people that God has called us together to to be members of the one, the many members of the one body, that we all have a part, an important part to play in the body of Christ. Everyone in here that God has called has a tremendously important part to play. There's a sense in which Paul taught in the Corinthians, we can't do it without each other, at least have the effect that we could have when we are in unity. And we want a common agreement that God has reveals himself through his word and that the word of God has the power to transform hearts. We can be transformed by the hearing and obedience to the word of God. These things are very, very significant. So as believers, we have a job to do. And that is to build our hearts in unity and the desire for the word of God. God's word has the power to save. And I just pray that if God, the spirit of God, the living God has spoken to your heart this morning, that you will obey the promptings of the spirit in whatever direction that is. He is leading you because you have been in the presence of the living God. May God bless the preaching of his word.